Hello, this is Movie Night, and I'm Harry Kaysen, a writer, director, and sometimes actor who has spent his career in Hollywood. Though now, I happily reside here in gorgeous Cape Cod, me along with the wave of eager tourists who flocked to this part of America during the summer, and of course, we're glad to have them, just as I'm glad you've joined me today. I'll be reviewing four new films this program. Since it's August, I'll be giving my opinions on some of the big summer movies. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, Barbie, Oppenheimer, and the one film that's my favorite for this episode. Those of you who are repeat listeners to this show know that I like to keep that title a secret until later to see if I can lure you into sticking around. Here's a hint, though. It doesn't star Harrison Ford, though I wish it did. I'll be interviewing one of my esteemed associates from Hollywood also. He is Kevin Simons, a working actor and dear friend. You may remember him as Councilman Dexhart from Parks and Recreation, or the dad in Best Friends Whenever, or recently as a co-star in the movie Babylon, or the soap General Hospital, or NCIS, or countless other productions. Like I said, he's a working actor. He's one of the people on strike right now, which means he's not working, and you'll hear from him what that life is like in the trenches. Beyond the strike, which is still on as I record this, working actors are those hardy and resilient souls who populate Hollywood while following their dreams, no matter the cost. Now... As the movie night, that's spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, I consider myself a defender of the realm, as it were, one who appreciates, even reveres, the art of cinema. My opinions are mine and mine alone, and as always, I won't be handing out negative reviews on this program, knowing firsthand how challenging it can be to bring a film to life. I only want to praise the recent works I'm most fond of. This is only a half-hour show, so I can only address a handful of movies, but in my humble estimation, they're all Wonderful. And our first film is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It was written by Eric Jenderson and Christopher McQuarrie, based on characters created by Bruce Geller. It was directed by Christopher McQuarrie and was produced by Lifer Dagfinson, Christopher McQuarrie, and Tom Cruise. It stars Tom Cruise, Haley Atwell, Ving Rames, Simon Pegg, Rebecca Ferguson, Vanessa Kirby, and Isai Morales. So, unless you're newly woken from hibernation, you're more than likely to know about this movie, or at least that it's out there. The ad campaign, as the entire human race has become alerted to, is one of the juggernaut variety, which is one of the reasons it might seem unusual that I'm reviewing this picture. I usually steer clear of such all-enveloping cultural sandstorms. But here we are, and lo and behold, like Mikey and Life Serial, I liked it. I really liked it. Turns out I'm not as much of a snob as I thought I was. Here's the plot. Get ready. Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, and this is the seventh time over 27 years he's taken on this mantle. He's up against a deadly force that threatens everything and everyone. His superiors, they've lost faith in him. His stalwart companions, even this time they believe it's hopeless. The odds? You're kidding, right? They're impossible, of course. Does this sound in any way like the previous six go-rounds? Of course it does. Why mess with success? But actually, there's more at play here. Tom Cruise, and regardless of what anyone thinks of him, I'm sure you have your own opinion, everyone in Hollywood agrees he's one savvy customer. He's had a firm grip on the Mission Impossible franchise since the very beginning and has always seeked to improve it. 
which, to my mind, is brilliant and daring for any studio to give that much power to one person. But let's think about it. Would the Indiana Jones movies be even better if Harrison Ford himself was allowed to call the shots, hire the writers and directors, and make sure not only that his part is respectable of the character and of him as an actor, but that his fans get what they lined up for? I'm willing to believe those films would be better. Same goes for, say, Chris Pine as Captain Kirk, or Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, to name just a few. The most effective major stars, going back to Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, and Mary Pickford, always had their projects tailored specifically to their sometimes limited range, and almost always with great success because of it. They were bigger than the studios. As is Tom Cruise, like it or not. The obvious problem with monster-budget movies is there are usually so many egos and ideas flying around, so many jobs at stake, that too often they turn into a sloppy Waldorf salad. Not a perfectly cooked sirloin steak sitting on a sizzling platter in all its beautiful simplicity. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, just happens to be that steak, if you will. You sense there's one idea behind it, one reason for its existence, and that reason is not to elevate Tom Cruise. It's to serve up a delicious experience right before our eyes, to give us what we paid for, to fulfill, as Kevin Costner puts it, that promise made in the dark. In any case... Everyone in front of and behind the cameras does an exemplary job. You sense they're all proud of being a dazzling part of what Hollywood used to do best, and clearly still can, given the right people and the right circumstances. Kudos. Who knew? The next film <laughs> is Barbie. <laughs> It was written, I can't even keep myself from smiling thinking about it. It was written by Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig and directed by Greta Gerwig. It stars Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, America Ferrara, Kate McKinnon, Issa Rae, and Ariana Greenblatt. I did say this would be a blockbuster episode, so here we are with another blockbuster. And again, you'd need to be living under a rock to not be aware of this film. The audience I saw this movie with was about 90% female, and I have to say they all loved it. Not since I went to a performance of Wicked and sometimes later a screening of Frozen have I experienced such a love fest between women, which was a wonderful thing indeed. And the movie? It's funny as hell. What I particularly appreciated was the indie spirit, if you will. Greta Gerwig is just the right writer-director for this thing. Her background in small-budget, large-idea movies fits this project to a T. Yes, this is a big budget, relatively speaking, though it's a third the budget of Mission Impossible. But you get the feeling there are other sensibilities at work here beyond sheer box office. I guess what I'm inferring here is this movie is actually trying to say something. More on that in a minute. The plot is basically a vision quest. Barbie starts to have deep thoughts. She has to track down the origin of those thoughts. And though there are forces at work to keep her in her place, as it were, she must fight her way and think her way and even love her way to the finish line. As the title character, Barbie, though there are countless iterations, Margot Robbie comes through with flying colors, even if most of those colors are primary and most of those primaries are pink. She's an innocent, as innocent as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. You can't help but love her. Ryan Gosling is Ken, and there are a boatload of Kens here, too. Has a lot of fun playing a purposely vacuous boy toy, pardon my pun, with the ridiculous perfect abs. Now, does the energy flag a bit here and there? Well, sure. It starts out so high-octane, it does sputter occasionally. Is it trying to say too much? 
Perhaps. An icon like the Barbie doll has meant so much to so many, either for or against. It's natural the filmmakers try to tie this little piece of plastic to a myriad of what's right and wrong with our culture, our planet, even men and women. My God. But is this movie for everyone? Hmm. My wife didn't actually get it. It was too commercial for her, even though what's pretty much the whole point is the commercialism. However, I found it kind-hearted, beyond dazzling, and pretty fun. Did the four other guys in the packed theater feel the same? I would say, from the look on their faces on the way out. And like Tom Cruise, Margot Robbie is to be credited here for finding and creating a perfect starring role for herself. I don't remember all the plot points as I write this, less than a week after seeing Barbie, but that's okay. It's a summer movie. It may be the epitome of a summer movie, like Jaws or Star Wars. Ah, but nobody dies here. That Barbie would be proud of herself. This is Movie Night, and I'm Harry Kaysen. Thank you for tuning in. The next film up is Oppenheimer. It was written and directed by Christopher Nolan. The screenplay, based on the novel American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin Sherman, it was produced by Christopher Nolan and his longtime producing collaborator, his wife, Emma Thomas. It stars Killian Murphy, Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, and Robert Downey Jr., along with many others. So this, along with the other two movies I reviewed, qualifies as a bona fide blockbuster. Uh, and the other movie out right now in that category stars Harrison Ford and why I liked Mr. Ford. I didn't feel I could adequately provide an overall positive review, so I'm not reviewing it. Oh, gosh, that's as close to a negative review as I choose to give. Anyway, I think this summer will go down as either the summer that saved movies or the summer that died trying. I hope it's the former, not the latter. But let's talk about Oppenheimer. The plot centers on the real-life story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. We follow Dr. Oppenheimer from his early college days to his involvement in the Manhattan Project, to the aftermath of World War II, to the beginning of the Cold War and the nuclear bomb arms race. It's a heady subject, to say the least. To me, the most remarkable thing about this movie is that it was even made. I don't know who else besides Mr. Nolan could have made this film, and certainly no other current filmmaker could have assembled such a glittering and capable cast. A cast that starts and ends with Killian Murphy. Mr. Murphy, an Irish actor, has been in previous Nolan pictures, and I'm wondering if perhaps Mr. Nolan chose this subject simply because Killian Murphy is the living embodiment of Oppenheimer himself. There's always been an otherworldly, haunted quality to Mr. Murphy, and the footage available of Dr. Oppenheimer shows that exact same otherworldly vein. Few movies I can think of capture the absolute essence of their main protagonist, but this one fits the bill. The movie is compelling, and it's very dense. I don't mean unintelligent. I mean quite the opposite. What I mean is there's so much going on, it's worth a second viewing just to keep up. That's a quality inherent to most of all Mr. Nolan's Chinese puzzle boxes that he calls films. One never has one intelligence insulted by him. I spoke to a Princeton undergrad a while back, and she was quite uninterested in films and films in filmmakers in general, except for films, any films, by Christopher Nolan. That doesn't mean they're strictly cerebral. His films can be emotionally engaging. Florence Pugh, as Oppenheimer's first wife, gives an absolutely heartbreaking performance in a challenging and multi-layered role. My only complaint lies in the structure of the narrative, in that I wish there had been more attention paid to his inner life and turmoil and of not only Oppenheimer but of those around him. 
lucky or unlucky enough to be caught up in the whirlwind of trying to beat the Nazis to the ultimate weapon. There is inner turmoil and emotional depth. I just kept wishing for a little more. But another exciting aspect of this film is the fact it's bringing butts into seats. All three of the blockbusters I've been reviewing are such that when I saw them, each of them, I was surrounded by a large, engaged, and enthusiastic crowd, something most of us haven't experienced in several years. There's obviously something primal about having a good tale told to one while part of an eager group. Campfire stories. The campfire being the shimmering screen itself, something we've taken it granted for a hundred years. It's great to have it back. Now it's time for my guest, my good friend Kevin Simons. He's a working actor in Hollywood and has been such for decades. I mentioned just some of his credits before, but I'm happy to do it again to those who've just tuned in. Here's a quick list. Parks and Recreation, General Hospital, NCIS, Best Friends Whenever, Darcy's Wildlife, Babylon, and many more. He'll be talking to us from his home in Los Angeles. He's on the front lines of the actor's strike. Let's bring him on. Okay, so we're here with my friend Kevin Simons. How are you, sir? I'm uh, good. How are you? What's going on? Thank you. Uh, what's going on with you? What's the, what's the latest in the world of show business? Uh, well... How's the strike affecting you personally? Yeah, oh, it's definitely affecting me. Uh, you know, everything's... A lot of stuff is shut down. There's still some auditions. Um, commercially, it hasn't affected commercials, so I have been going out for commercial stuff, and I also uh, have a recurring on uh, the soap opera General Hospital... Good. So on some of those, because that the soaps are not affected either. So that's really, really good. But yeah, it's it's really taking its toll on uh, a lot of folks here. So sure. But, sure. Well, I'm glad you're finding work out there. That's that's great. I had an interview with Charlie Shaughnessy, another fellow actor. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but he was talking about the difference between British actors and American actors. Yeah. And how, in his opinion, American yeah. actors try too hard. You know, they're, they're all so concerned with the method and you're really feeling it. And how do you feel about that? You can defend American actors now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, you know, I think everybody has their own process of what they do. I know I've had mine since college and what I need to do in, in terms of, uh, you know, looking at a script, breaking it down. I'm not one of these guys that's like, Nothing wrong with Dustin Hoffman. I love Dustin Hoffman, but you know when he was doing uh, what was it where he was working with Laurence Olivier uh, in um, uh, Marathon Man. Marathon Man, thank you. And uh, you know he was to get his. He was supposed to be up for forty eight hours, and so he's staying all awake and he's screaming into a pillow. So his voice is bad and all that sort of thing. You know, and 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 Olivier of course said, "Why not try acting, dear boy?" Right, which is, <laughs> right. Yeah, and I'm not a guy that's going to go overboard like that. I do my my homework. Um, and I break down the script. I get my character choices. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. What is an actor's homework besides learning the lines? What other homework is there for an actor? Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's motivations. It's um, intent. It's what your objectives are. And that can be as much as your overall objective for your character and the entire piece. And you can do that in television, too, even if you're doing a guest star. You sure. can find what your and and you break. I personally break down all of the lines, all the beats. What's my objective in this line? What's my objective in the scene? Sure. And that's what you want as a character, as a as an actor, as a person who would, if you were really that person, what what would you want out of that? So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of homework besides learning the lines. Some people like to learn all their lines ahead of time. I like to be very familiar with them because I like the process to 
with the blocking, the movement, I can really solidify. Now, it depends on the, the thing. If I'm doing a film or a television show or a commercial, I am off book, ready to go. For those in the audience who don't know what off book means, that means... Memorized. I have every line memorized. Yeah. yeah. Because when you get to a set, especially as a guest star or even a recurring, uh, you're walking into a TV series or a film that's already been shooting. Those cast members know each other. They don't know you. So you have to fit in to a well-oiled machine. You have to be professional. You have to be memorized. You have to be aware of what's going on. And you can't get in the way. You just got to go in, do your job, and get out. Sure. That makes sure. Any sense. That and that sense. means being professional. That means walk, being on time, learning your lines, and then being open to whatever blocking, whatever movement you have to do. Well, let's talk about the, the learning the lines bit just a little bit. In that, uh, I remember you telling me when you were in Parks and Recreation, the, the, yes. the, the wonderful show that we all love, uh, how much of that was not scripted? And what do you do when there's no script? How do you yeah. bounce How do you bounce into that? Parks was different. And that's because we had a script, a very funny script. The writing was incredible, as you know. You've watched the show. Loved it. Uh, <clears throat> so we would do, this was every, every episode I did, we would do the, the script as written, several times with getting the coverage and all that sort of thing. It was always as written. Then after we'd gotten four or five takes, they would loosen it up a little bit. So you could kind of not be exact with the lines. You could kind of improvise a little bit. Then the next take, they would loosen it up even more. Mm. Then the last take was what Amy Poehler called a fun run, which was completely improvised. <laughs> improvised. The whole thing was improvised. And you know, I would try to get in one or two good improv lines and I would watch Amy Poehler and, you know, John Glazer and, and some of these other incredible improvist, improv actors. And I just kind of go, I'm going to just sit back and watch this because this is incredible. But we, now, once in a while, they would use something from the fun runs. Not as much. It was more just for us. But I, I improvised a couple of times on the show, and Amy Poehler used those uh, improvs in on the in the final cut. So that oh, that's was, great. Yeah. Well, knowing knowing this is a family show, I'm going to ask you a question regarding that particular uh, that particular uh, series. Uh, what is Tex Mexting? <laughs> Tex Mexting is where you send photos of your junk from the restroom of a Chili's to go. <laughs> was that one of your made up lines? No, that was not. That was scripted. That, that was, was scripted. Scripted. that was scripted. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, would that with that particular role as uh, Councilman Dexart, would that yes. be, would you consider that one of your more fun roles, or maybe the most fun role? I would say that was probably, if you ask me, highlights in my career. That would be way, way at the top. I oh, had right. an absolute great time. Everybody on that show was absolutely incredible. It was like good family, you know, family that you like. Oh, those and, guys, yeah. Yeah. So I every time I every time I'd go back and do an episode, it was just picking up from where we left off. And it was so supportive and so much fun. And uh, and and when you have that sort of situation, you become more creative. You know what I mean? You allow those creative juices to flow instead of feeling like you're you're being held back. In this business, a lot of the time, you just have to be, you know, hit your mark, say your line, and go home. And sure. be able to do a little bit more is a real treat. That would be a lot of fun, certainly. Uh, tell me something that any of your acting teachers ever taught you that, you, that now you realize was just bunk. <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, a 
thing going on toward the end of my uh, time at where I went to college, Cal State Fullerton, where they were starting to experiment with what they used to call abandonment. Oh. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't have to do a whole lot of it. It came in. It was it was the predominant uh, thing they were teaching right after I left. And abandonment was they felt that if you're if you're locked up and you are putting roadblocks in your way, you would just start screaming at the top oh. of and abandon <laughs> abandon what's going on in your body. And it was so ridiculous because <laughs> i would say to people i said what are you going to do i'm going into an audition for uh you know for ncis and i'm gonna well i'm i'm feeling blocked up so i'm going to be in the waiting room screaming at the top of my lungs <laughs> that's absolute right. crap that's fun that would be considered wrong. well now in the, in the reverse of that what's yeah. the best advice you ever got from any of your acting teachers yeah it would be from jose quintero who i worked with uh and studied with and he was an absolute brilliant man and yeah, genius it, genius yeah absolute genius director and and acting teacher and jose was of the my belief which is i don't follow just the method or i don't follow just meisner i learn all of them and then i take bits and pieces of what i can from each one and yeah. i don't the, the big thing he did not do, which a lot of acting teachers will do, including the abandonment thing, is stripping away what you've already learned, what you've already worked on, and cutting you down and starting from scratch. And I don't believe in that. I think you take what you already have, you get rid of some bad habits, but everything that you've lived and everything that you've done and everything that you've studied goes into that that pot, that 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 what you use to 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 make the final character happen and the final work happen. And I don't think sure. you should take away. I think you should build on what your talents already are. Well, they say that uh, Henry Fonda never, ever liked to talk about his process ever because right. he thought it would, he thought it would be, he'll spoil the magic if I start to talk about it. Sure. Totally understandable. I mean, I will always be an open book for anyone, um, any young folks that have a question and all that. I feel for me, that's, having done this for 30 years, I feel like that's um, something that I really get excited about uh, sure. helping, helping young newer actors. Yeah. Find their way. Cause I didn't have anyone. I, I literally, my folks weren't in the business. My family wasn't in the business. Uh, and so I had to learn everything by doing and by making mistakes and learning and doing yeah. crappy yeah. theater. My dear friend, Harry Kaysen would come see me. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't bad crappy. <laughs> Well, now, in the meantime, let's let's change subjects just for a bit. We're getting a little serious. They say you're not supposed to work with kids or animals. Uh, you've done a lot of both. A lot of both. Yeah. How uh, many different kinds of animals have actually defecated on you? Yeah. Well, uh, in my very first TV series called Darcy's Wildlife, it was an NBC show. I played a veterinarian, a uh -huh. wacky veterinarian. I had every kind of excrement on me that you could <laughs> my first day of my first day of shooting. They wrapped an 80 pound, no, 60 pound uh, python around me oh. named Julius Squeezer. That was the name of the of the the, the snake. Yeah, that's and cute. It was so heavy and it was getting into every nook and cranny. It was crazy. I was stabbed by porcupines. I was a pig went all over my entire outfit, just let <laughs> it all out. That's on camera, is. on camera. And then, of course, all the cameras are getting around to get it on film. I mean, great. This is just great. Get get yeah. it all on film so you can, yeah. Wolves, bears, 
I worked with every kind of animal you could possibly imagine. And, and the teenage cast. So I was, you know, right off, right out of the gate, I was um, working kids with kids and animals. I've done a lot of yeah. kids shows, a lot of Disney shows and, and Nickelodeon shows. And I love them. I just, I really do. It's so much fun. Do you have a favorite co-star? Parks and Rec was really special. Yeah. Really a very special show. And and uh, I still keep in touch with some of the cast. I also get really close with, you know, theater people and stay in touch with them and, and get together. We're kind of a community. And um, it's such a fleeting thing. You say, oh, we're going to stay in touch and be friends forever. Well, that that just doesn't happen because we're gypsies. You know, we're moving on to the next thing. Yeah. Now, one, so, thing, it, one thing the average person doesn't realize, I think, is how much uh, rejection there is in your world and how, no. how tenuous it all is. You could get a phone call in five minutes and your entire life changes. You're right. Doesn't, doesn't exactly. that drive you crazy? Yes. But you kind of it's like uh, you have to develop a thick skin. And it has to run off and it takes a while for it to run off your back like, you know, like a duck. I mean, it's just it's constant. As I always say to the younger, but you have to learn to love the word no, because it's what you hear most of the time. But I'm sure then you get those beautiful nuggets where you get a TV series or you get a commercial campaign like when I had Chevy and, you know, but we also learn the smart ones, I hope. Also learn that when when you are in the, you know, in the money, if you will, or, you know, the things are good, you sock it away, baby, because you just never know when uh, you're going to be out of work again. Like right now, you never know when there's going to be a strike or, yeah. you know, that just the, the dynamics have changed and ageism and all that sort of thing. It all comes into play. But what I regret it No, not not for a second. It's well, there you it, go for me it's for me it's not easy but it's for me yeah thank you so very much mr Kevin sure. and uh godspeed and here's to uh great roles coming your way soon thank you love love the show and love cape cod now i come to my favorite of the bunch this time interestingly enough and it's also a window into my personal tastes because this is not a blockbuster. It's a movie currently available on Netflix. It's entitled 65. It was directed and written by Scott Beck and Brian Woods. It was produced by Zainab Azizi, Deborah Liebling, and the prolific Sam Raimi, along with Mr. Beck and Woods. By the way, Mr. Beck and Mr. Woods are the two writers responsible for A Quiet Place, a thinking person's horror movie from a few years back. This film, 65, stars Adam Driver and Ariana Greenblatt, who is also in Barbie, by the way. So, this is a flat-out sci-fi action-adventure tale, unapologetically so. It's also very sleek and very smart storytelling. There's no fat on the bone here. But it's not unemotional, as some less, lesser action flicks are. It's engaging and surprising. Here are the basics. Adam Driver is the main protagonist. Yes, him again, I know. He seems to be in everything these days. Didn't he just deliver my mail? Didn't he bag my groceries? Wasn't he my Uber driver? He's reaching the saturation point, but hopefully his management will pull him back a bit. I do like him, but come on, Adam, take a break. You've earned it. That said, he's the protagonist, as I mentioned, and he's a spaceman. Pretty much standard fare. He's taking a rocket ship somewhere. Boom, he gets knocked down to some crazy-ass planet. Will he survive? Now, when I say it's sleek storytelling, I mean things get going right away. No haunted spaceship to crawl around, no peering over dripping corners and endless dialogue while we're waiting for some rubber monster to bite someone in the butt. 
Not by a long shot. He's trapped on this god-awful planet, but there's a way out if he can get there. And yes, there's a damsel in distress he needs to bring along so she doesn't get her pretty self chomped. The fun part is figuring out where and when these stalwart folks have found themselves. The 65 of the title, and the filmmakers tell you right away, refers to 65 million years ago, and where they are becomes quickly apparent. Earth, baby. Mr. Driver comports himself quite well here as usual, and his co-star, Ms. Greenblatt is very natural and talented, and her character is young enough that that's no creepy sexual tension or drawn-out, weepy, almost romance. She's an innocent, but she's not unskilled, as we'll see. And Mr. Driver not only has to rescue her from dragons, literally dragons, but he has to figure out how to blow this popsicle stand before they're all vaporized, ah, by the rapidly approaching and most cataclysmic event ever to occur on this third rock from the sun. Is there any headache-making philosophy at work here? No. Is there a melancholy for missed opportunities or wasted resources? No. Any zombies? No. Is this man's search for meaning in a silent cosmos? No. Should we all just sit back and enjoy the thrill ride? Yes. The famous film critic, Pauline Kael, one of my heroes, used a term to describe this type of film. It's meticulously crafted, all the pieces fit together, yet there's a surprising and engaging humanity to it. It's like a clock that laughs. I know that seems an odd metaphor, but it's appropriate here. Though there's not a lot of laughter, but there are a lot of surprises, and it's all meticulously crafted. Well, that's it, dear listeners. I'd like to thank my guest this episode, my friend and colleague, Kevin Simons. I'd also like to thank, as always, the talented Mr. Dunn for his fine work as my sound engineer. I'd like to thank my wife, Lynn, for accompanying me to these films, and I'd like to thank the fine folks at WOMR for allowing me to be a part of their wonderful three-ring circus of the air. I'm proud to be amongst these folks, and you, dear listener, I'm hoping you feel the same way, too. This is Harry Kaysen, The Movie Night, saying goodbye and good movies.